Our Father, your word says that many withdrew and were not walking with Christ anymore. And Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Father, we thank you that no one is born again as an act of themselves, but it is a work of your Spirit. For you said that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that by nature no one seeks God. But thank you for the promise of the Spirit that you said he would come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I thank you for so many that he's done that for in this room, in Graniteville, and in Hilton Head Bluffton campuses, and some that he wants to do it to today. And I pray that he would, that they might find true forgiveness that comes only through the Savior of the world. Father, we thank you that when you save us, you secure us for heaven, and that you have committed yourself to work everything together for our good to make us and conform us into the image of your Son. We know that you use trials and difficulties and afflictions, and so you told us to consider it all joy, to choose to count it joy when various trials come upon us, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. You told us to let endurance have its perfect result, that we would be mature, complete, lacking nothing. There are many within the sound of my voice today, Father, who are seriously ill. And from a human perspective, there is no hope, but you have ordained the days that were for us even before there was yet one. Some who are in affliction for their faith and who are being opposed because of what they stand for and others who have just come out of a trial. Wherever we are, help us to be sensitive to one another. You've made us individually members of one body. You told us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. You commanded us as the body of Christ to lift up all those who are in authority over us. And so this morning we pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for our Congress. We ask for even the Supreme Court of the United States and the choices that will be made possibly this week. We ask your mercy upon us, for we deserve nothing. We have abandoned you. We have mocked you. We use your name in vain. And as a people, we entertain ourselves on wicked things. May the church of God be distinctly different. May we be like light that dispels darkness like salt that preserves righteousness. Thank you for your word today that feeds a hungry soul. And we come in dependence upon the Spirit of God, the teacher who works behind human teachers, and we ask that he would illumine the truth that is found here. Help me, Holy Spirit, fill me and anoint me and use me. I ask it for the glory of Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Take God's Word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We have been in a verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter study of the apocalypse. That's another title for this book. In fact, the 
English editions of many Bibles title this book The Apocalypse or sometimes The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis is the very first word in the Greek New Testament, and it's a word either in noun or verb form that means to unveil, to disclose. And so this book is an unveiling, it's a disclosure, it's an apocalypsis, an unveiling of the Lord Jesus. If you miss Jesus in this book, and all you see is judgments from God, then you've missed everything. This book, really the whole of Scripture, is about our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the book of Revelation, but I know Satan hates it. In fact, there are two books that Satan principally hates. One, he hates the book of Genesis, where his doom is pronounced, but he also hates the book of Revelation, where his doom is carried out. In fact, if you contrast the first book of the Bible with the last book of the Bible, you see that the revelation is like a beautiful uh, golden clasp that binds the whole work together. For example, in the opening chapters, you see the creation of the first heaven and the first earth. And in the closing chapters of the revelation, you see a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In the opening chapters of Genesis, you find the first Adam reigning on earth. When you come to the end of the Revelation, you see the second Adam, the last Adam, reigning in glory. In the book of Genesis, the seas and the night are created. In the book of Revelation, in the New Jerusalem, the sea is gone and there's no more night. In Genesis, there's a bride that's presented to Adam. In the Revelation, Christ receives His bride, the church. In Genesis, you see the tree of life there in the Garden of Eden. But in the book of Revelation, you see the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. In Genesis, you can see sin entering into human history with a curse and all the destruction that it brings. But in the book of Revelation, we come to a time when there will be no more sin and no more curse. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time on the pages of Scripture. In the Revelation, we will see him for the last time, never to see him again. So today we're going to study just two verses here in the 14th chapter as we continue our exposition of this important book. But to give you a flavor of where we've been, we're going to start reading in verse 1. And really, as I read the text, you should think as we read the words... Are you understanding the words that I'm reading? And if you've missed a phrase here or there, go back, listen to the message at searchthescriptures.org on your phone or computer, and listen to the message again, because you want to be able to think your way through this entire book, all right? Revelation 14, beginning now in verse 1, then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. 
And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed and the full strength and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. Now, let me set the broad context and then the immediate context. You remember we are in the after these things section of the book of Revelation, the futuristic section that begins in chapter 4. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw God the Father and God the Son preparing to judge the world for that future time that is called the Great Tribulation Period. The question is often asked, what happens after the church is raptured? An open door in heaven is opened and the church is brought up. And what happens upon the earth? Well, that's chapter 6 through the 18th chapter. What happens when the church is gone? And we've seen through chapters, beginning in chapter 6, a series of judgments. They come in three principal forms, what's called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments. And the sealed judgments, so there are some similarities today. We still have earthquakes and famines and so forth. But we will see a different expression like we've never seen before. Jesus describes the sealed judgments as the beginning labor in Matthew chapter 24. But a lot of what happens under the sealed judgments during that time, man creates his own problems through wicked men. And the world is ruined by man. Now, if you remember after, uh, and by the way, here's a chart of the seal judgments. If you remember, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowl judgments. And the structure of the revelation is very important that you grasp it or it will be difficult for you to understand. We saw that there are six seals, the first four, of course, being the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we saw what they brought. The fifth seal is representative of the martyrdom of Christians as man slaughters Bible-believing, born-again Christians who come to faith after the church is raptured. And then the sixth seal is a, a picture of the initial cosmic changes, not even going to compare to what we're going to study when we come to the bold judgments. And then if you remember, between each set of three, between the sixth and seventh seal, between the sixth and seventh bowl, uh, trumpet, between the sixth and seventh bowl, there is a parenthesis, not of time, but in the narrative to allow us to see what God has been doing during these time of judgments. Sometimes it's a review of what has been going on, and sometimes it's a preview of what He is going 
to do. So between the sixth and seventh seal, you have Revelation chapter 7. And we met for the first time the 144,000 Jewish men who are preaching the gospel during that time. And through their preaching, a great multitude of people who have never heard the plan of salvation before will be saved. Then the seventh seal is broken. And if you remember, in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, as this next slide reminds us. And again, the structure is the same. Between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there's a narrative that, again, reviews and previews what is going to happen. And so the seventh seal was open in the beginning of chapter eight. And when it's opened, unlike with the, uh, when this, uh, unlike the seal judgments where you can only see one at a time, when the seventh seal is open, you can see all trumpet judgments. And in the seventh trumpet, you can see all the bowl judgments. And there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Heaven that is filled with praise. Every mouth is stopped. People are dead silent in awe of what is about to take place. We studied the first six trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and then we came to the parenthesis beginning in chapter 10. In chapter 10, if you remember, we studied the strong angel holding his little book. And then in chapter 11, we studied the two witnesses. Jesus spoke of the return of Elijah, as did Malachi. There's two men who are going to have an incredible, miraculous preaching ministry. I think they're Elijah and Moses in either case. Um, then the seventh trumpet is blown in 1115. And you think, okay, now here come the bulls. But no, there's another parenthesis. You don't actually see the trumpet uh, blown where the bowls begin to unfold until you come to the 15th and 16th chapter. And God, once again, gives us a parenthesis in the narrative because he wants to introduce us to seven key personages who are going to be functioning in the second half. See, the trigger for the seventh seal that brings the seven trumpets, as we've already studied, is the abomination of desolation that takes place right in the middle of the tribulation. So God wants you to know of these seven key personalities. We study them in chapters 12 and 13, as this chart reminds us. The woman, it's not a mystery. God identifies many of the symbols within the revelation. It's a reference to the nation of Israel. The dragon, the scripture tells us, it's the devil. The male child, it's the one who is pierced for us. There in Jerusalem, crucified, it's the Messiah, it's the Christ. Michael, he's simply called the archangel. The rest of her children, a description of of those saved Jews during the time of the tribulation who flee into the wilderness in obedience to Christ's command. The beast out of the sea, he's called the Antichrist, the first beast. But then as we saw in the second half of 14, or 13, there's, a, there's another beast, the beast out of the earth. And he is the false prophet who works alongside pointing men to the Antichrist. That brings us to chapter 14, where we are today. If you remember, the chapter opens in verse 1 with the words, Then I looked. And God is about to give John a new vision of the future. And once again, if you remember, we see these 144,000 Jewish evangelists 
who follow Christ. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you preachers of men. Ipso facto, if you're following Christ, you're fishing for men. If you're not trying to fish for men, if you're not trying to win people to Christ, I don't care how many Bible studies you go to or what else you may do in this church, you're really not truly following these, the Lord. These 144,000 Men, and by the way, they are men. Why? Because God has entrusted the preaching ministry to men. And these 144,000 take the gospel worldwide. We're told in verses 2 and 3, if you'll notice, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So the voice is from heaven, the scripture says, and it's compared like the sound of many waters, like a rushing waterfall that's just cascading over a cliff. It just keeps coming in tremendous volume. This is not a dead song. This is a loud song, but it's not an unpleasant loud. It's also likened to the sound of harpists playing on their harp. It's sweet. It's pleasant. It's soothing. And it's a picture of the church there in heaven, singing from heaven. For just as the body of Christ is compared to one body in many members, even so there is one voice. And so in verse 3, that one voice is identified, these singing in heaven, with the pronoun they. Look at verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song, speaking now of those on the earth where John is watching, except the 144,000 who have been purchased from the earth. So 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion. Some of you came with me to Israel last year. Some are planning to go in September of next year. And we stood on the Mount of Olives, and directly across is the Temple Mount. It's called Mount Zion. It's where God built the temple. At Ramadan, there were over 500,000 Muslims up there. It can hold a lot of people. There'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to be standing there with the Lord Jesus on literal Mount Zion. He's not talking about a heavenly Zion. He's talking about literal Zion as the text all the way through indicates. And these are the people who have been purchased. And notice who's singing in heaven. The voice they heard was the voice of the four living creatures, angels. I hope you know that every time someone gets saved, Jesus said it three times over in Luke 15, the angels in heaven rejoice. Angels can sing. They sang at the creation of the world, Job tells us. But not only are they singing, the 24 elders, which we saw represented the entire church is singing. Old Testament saints are singing. And these who are on Mount Zion are able to learn the song. Why? Because they too are redeemed people. You see, he's, he's reminding us among other things that there's one Savior. People in the Old Testament weren't saved by human merit, and today we're saved by grace. Everyone that you will meet in heaven will be there because of the work of Jesus. Be they Old Testament, New Testament, or tribulation saints, they will all be there because of Jesus. Certainly not every Old Testament saint knew that the Savior's name would be Jesus. That was revealed to Mary and Joseph when he came into the world. But they were looking forward to the Messiah as we look back to the Messiah. Now, chronologically, the new song that John hears is a hymn of praise during the time of the Great Tribulation. Understand here 
that this chapter is not given in chronological order, and if you just read it all the way through, it becomes apparent. For instance, uh, the events stated in chapter 14 clearly are not chronological because we studied last time here, verses 6 through 8, where we have three angels who are preaching during the tribulation. And then he jumps forward all the way to the great white throne judgment and then back again in verses 11 and 12, 10, 11, and 12, and then he goes back again uh, to verse 13 to those alive during the time of the tribulation. He has organized this chapter thematically to show that God is triumph in every realm and that God is sovereign in human history. Now, understand, we've studied last week three angels who will be preaching during the tribulation period. Angels, interestingly enough, are not preaching the gospel today. God didn't, when he commissioned that angel to get Cornelius to go preach the gospel, he didn't preach the gospel to him, but he told him how to get the gospel. And God gave Peter a vision, and he brought the two together, and Peter shared the gospel. People who've been redeemed by grace today preach grace. Angels are learning from us, 1 Corinthians 11.10 says. They're here today. You say, I don't see them. They're in the invisible realm. Our congregation is much bigger than you realize. They're watching some of you how you sang or maybe didn't sing. Some of you are old Mr. Stoneface, old Mrs. Stoneface. You barely can mumble the words. Your heart should be filled with praise. I don't care if you're offbeat. Sing a joyful noise. It doesn't say it has to be good, right? In either case, they're watching. They're learning. But things will change during the tribulation period. For instance, right now, who's preaching the gospel, Jews or Gentiles? For the most part, it's all Gentiles. This is the age of grace towards the Gentiles. Most Jews are in unbelief. But during the tribulation, the role switches. It's not Gentiles who are preaching. It's Jews, two witnesses and 144,000 Jewish men who are preaching during that time. And God is going to allow three angels to preach. Look at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. Then as soon as the first angel is finished with his preaching, a second angel, a second one steps up. Look at verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And so this second angel pronounces judgment on a place called Babylon. And it's what linguists call a prophetic preterite. That is, it, it describes it, a future event, as if it had already happened. But we will see chronologically, the event will not actually happen until the end of the bold judgments, and we'll study it in detail. So he, he's just giving us kind of a preview of this place called Babylon. And we'll study it in the 17th chapter. Not only is there religious Babylon that will first be destroyed by the Antichrist, where this eclectic one-world religion that is made up of all the isms of the world will be dismissed when the Antichrist is raised back to life, and he's going to demand a singular worship 
people worship him only. And so 10 kings will destroy religious Babylon. And then in Revelation 18, we'll study economic Babylon, this commercial empire that is flourishing, especially during the first half of the tribulation. And we'll see why. So the thought is just introduced to us, but we will see it is a literal, actual city. We'll be able to identify from Scripture what city this is. So you don't want to miss that. You say, what city is it? Come, wait till we get to the 17th chapter. We'll get there. But it's more than a city. It's also a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's everything, religiously, economically, morally, that is opposed to God Almighty. And then he sends a third angel who first uh, uh, who preaches here beginning in verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, we saw the beast is this coming one-world leader that John calls in his first epistle the Antichrist. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength and the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and brimstone. You say, is that real? Yes, it is. Don't say, well, hell is just a place of separation. It is. But is it, a, it is a place, Jesus taught, of actual, literal fire and brimstone. Jesus said the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. And it will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They shall have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image, who receive the mark of his name. This verse, these verses tell us of this horrible place called hell where people will suffer for all of eternity. It's a horrible place. And if you go there, it will be no one's fault but yours because you will have rejected what God revealed in the Bible, his way of salvation for your own way. But you don't have to go there. God doesn't want a single soul to go there. There will be a tear in the eye of God as he dismisses people for an eternity in hell. God has provided through his substitute a way of escape that you do not need to go there. But listen, those who take the mark of the beast will make a decision in their heart that cannot be reversed. Just like today, as this text will reveal to us, when you choose Christ, you make a decision that can never, ever be reversed. And so now we come to verses 12 and 13. So having described the judgment of the wicked, now he goes on to demonstrate the grace of God in the lives of the righteous. He has shown the spotlight on the wicked lost people, but now he's going to underscore his remnant. You've seen the wicked. Now God says, in essence, I want you to look at my children. And what a vast difference there is between those who follow the Antichrist and those who follow the Lord Jesus. What you find here are three characteristics of tribulation saints, of people who are saved. And remember, they were given this seven churches in the first century, not just for these who would live at the end of time during the tribulation, but for every local church throughout all of time. There are lessons here. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. There are lessons today about what the lifestyle of a saved person looks like. I think it's not by accident that God dropped it here because he wants to highlight what a real saved person looks like because there's a lot of people, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, think they are saved. 
but they will find out they're not saved. And he will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So three characteristics from this angel's message underscore the lifestyle of the saved. First, saved people are those who have perseverance. Saved people are those who have perseverance. Perseverance is a major central doctrine of the New Testament. It is basically someone who throughout their life, once they make a decision for Christ, confess Jesus, period. Look at verse 12, how it begins. Here is the perseverance of the saints. This third angel, in effect, is contrasting, again, those who capitulate to the worship of the Antichrist, who are eternally doomed with the saints who persevere. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Now, remember, in the New Testament, unlike in Catholicism, say, saints are a select few people in Catholicism. In the Bible, every born-again Christian is a saint. You're looking at St. Carl this morning. It is based not on performance or something you've done. It is based on the work of Christ. God declares every believer, even the most immature and compromised in the New Testament, he calls them saints because their holiness was gifted to them. Their righteousness was received by grace. The per- Here then is the perseverance of the saints. And this is important because the genuine believer will persevere, and he need not fear that he might reach some place in his life where he will deny Christ. Now, some would say the very fact that this phrase, the perseverance of the saints are here, could mean that they might be lost. Actually, the Bible in these two verses is teaching just the opposite. Think your way through this biblically. For instance, the Bible affirms that heaven is eternal, it's forever. That does not automatically mean that it's possible that heaven could be temporary. Or um, the Bible affirms that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. That does not automatically mean that there could be another way to God the Father. Well, you cannot assume that when the Scripture speaks here of the perseverance of the saints, that that means that some might not persevere. We're going to see that letting Scripture interpret Scripture, because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, that once one crosses over into salvation, he will persevere to the end. Now, what's unfortunate is that people often do their theology on the basis of human experience rather than based on the authority of Scripture. You don't interpret Scripture through human experience. You'll get into all kinds of trouble. You put your human experience under the authority of Scripture. Your experience doesn't stand over Scripture. It is to stand under Scripture. And so God here is describing from the believer's perspective that he will not abandon God, he will persevere, and we will see from God's perspective, God will not abandon us. Now, Christians will sometimes naively ask, well, I understand that my salvation is a gift given to me by God, but could I not do something by which God could take it away? Someone called in the Bible line on Tuesday and asked that very question. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. If you're new to the Bible, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That covers the life of Christ while on earth and Acts, the first 30 years of church history. And then you come to the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans, if you will. 
in the book of Romans, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is not something that is merited. You see the five solas of the Reformation on the window behind you. It's sola gratia, sola fide. It's grace alone without human merit. Grace is not earned, as some have falsely teach. It's grace without merit. The instrument faith by which you receive that is faith without works. Salvation is never earned or merited. It is the gift of God. Now, as you're turning to Romans 8, let me just remind you, when someone asks me the question, well, if salvation is gifted to you, could God take away this gift? And the answer is no. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. They are irrevocable. They never change. In fact, irrevocable or without repentance, which is a little more literal, is the first word in the Greek New Testament. It's not the typical word order, but in Greek, when you wanted to emphasize or highlight or underline in red, you changed the word order. Literally, it says, for without repentance are the gifts in the calling of God. In fact, that is underscored in Romans 9 through 11. That's illustrated because he's talking about the nation of Israel. You see, Paul ends chapter 8 that we're going to look at in a moment that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, that, if that's true, God said he loved the Jewish people with an everlasting love. It seems like he abandoned them. And so in 9, he deals with Israel's election. In 10, he deals why Israel has rejected their Messiah. And 11, because God has loved them with an everlasting love, how he will in the future restore them. So look at the end of 8, look at verses 38 and 39, Romans 8. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The truths of Romans 8, 38, and 39 is an affirmation of what God said in Romans 8, 28. Many of you have Romans 8, 28 memorized, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who, and it's actually not a verb. The King James is best here. It's a noun to those who are the called. He's speaking of a group of people. To those who are the called according to his purpose. And then Paul elaborates in verses 29 and 30 how God works all things together for good. Now, we often take that a verse and we apply it to the uh, providences of life, and that's a legitimate and a good thing to do because God is working all things together for good. We are to give thanks in all things. But with that said, understand it in its original context. How are you working all things together for good, God? He explains beginning in verse 29. For, here's the reason, those whom he foreknew, and there are five words you should underline here. First, foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Underline the word predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He is describing five stages from beginning to end in this chain of salvation. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined for what purpose? To become conformed to the images of his son so that he, the Lord Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, that he might be glorified. 
Now, people often use the word predestined today very loosely, and we say, well, you know, God chose some people to go to heaven and other people to go to hell. It's never used that way in the Bible, not once. It's used to describe what God does to a person after they get saved, that after you are born again, God has predestined you towards a purpose. And what is that purpose? Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called underscore that verb called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He declared righteous, underscore that word justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified, underscore that word. It's the unbroken chain of salvation that begins with God's foreknowledge, prognoskel, prior knowledge. Paul uses it before Festus that the Jewish people knew beforehand, same verb, of what his life was like before he was converted. God in eternity past, because he's omniscient, he knows those who will believe and those who won't. If God didn't know that, he wouldn't be God. But God knowing that does not change in one bit your free will. But I want you to see that on the basis of God's foreknowledge, he called people, he predestined people, and everyone he predestined, past tense, he justified, past tense, and he glorified, past tense. Wait a minute. Glorification is a future dimension of our salvation when our body is changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's true. But in God's mind, it is as good as done because what he began, he will complete. Look at verse 31. He asks a rhetorical question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Absolutely no one. For God reasons in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Of course he will. This too is a rhetorical question, meaning if God did not spare his own precious son, then he won't withhold any kindness to you. And so when a Christian asks me as a pastor, well, I understand that my salvation is a gift given to me by God, but couldn't God take away my salvation? No, he cannot and he will not. To take away your salvation would be to interfere with the purpose for which he has predestined you, mainly for it to end up in your being glorified. It would require also a failure, not just in the purpose of God the Father that's underscored here in Romans, but it would also undermine the purpose of God the Spirit, right out in the margin next to this Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Let me read to you about the Spirit's commitment for our eternal security. In Him, in Christ, Paul writes, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the message of truth is defined here as the gospel. Unfortunately, today we don't preach the gospel. We preach, in a lot of circles, Christian metaphors. Invite Jesus into your heart and you'll get saved. There's Joel Osteen at the end of every sermon. It's not found anywhere in the Bible, I hope you know. Invite Jesus into your heart, and if you need to use that metaphor to describe the gospel, you're not sharing it accurately. The message of truth is the gospel of your salvation. It's articular. I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, Paul will write. Having also believed, then the benefits come to you. You were sealed in Christ 
How? With the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge and earnest, a down payment of our inheritance, this inheritance to come, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This, by the way, is very similar to 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul tells us that God sealed us and gave us the Spirit as a pledge in our hearts. Well, you say, maybe God would break the seal. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. For our salvation to be taken away would be a failure on the part of God the Father who has predestined us to a complete glorification. It would be a failure on the part of God the Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption, but it would also be a failure on the part of God the Son. Turn back to the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. You're in Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right before uh, Acts. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Turn to John chapter 6. Again, the Apostle John gave us five books in the New Testament. First, second, third, John. Those are three letters, the Gospel of John and the Revelation. And John explains a lot of the things in the Revelation in his gospel and in his three epistles. John 6, look at verse 37. A few words you might want to circle. The first word is all. All that the Father gives me, Jesus is speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not, underscore that, not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will of my, my own will, but the will of him, the Father who sent me. This is the will of him, the Father who sent me. That of all, underscore that word, all he has given me, I lose nothing, underscore lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds, it's a word that means to see with perception, to see with understanding. You have to understand the gospel before you believe it. And there's a lot of gospel presentations going around that a person couldn't get saved by. Well, if you're lost today, invite Jesus into your heart. That's not the gospel. Now, the gospel is simple enough. Jesus said a child can get it. But you must know you're bankrupt, unable to be your own Savior, that your sin condemns you and makes you a child of wrath. But there's a substitute who has died and raised and took that wrath for you. You have to behold the Son, but just understanding the gospel is not enough. Then you have to believe in Him. And the promise is you will have eternal life, and I myself, Jesus said, will raise Him up on the last day. That is an irrefutable promise to all who come to Him. Jesus, understand, came to earth not to do his own will, but the Father's will. And this is the will of the Father, that every single one, without exception, losing none, who looks to the Son and believes in in him, will be raised up in the last day. So for Jesus to have someone who looked to the Son, who believed in him, and then not to raise him up on the last day would be to disobey his father, and he did not come to disobey him. He came to obey him. So to teach today, as some do, that you can lose your salvation is, number one, it's to call Jesus a liar, and I'm not prepared to do that. And not only are you calling the Lord Jesus a liar, you are calling him a sinner because he will have disobeyed the father's will because we just read the father's will without exception is that every single one None lost that believe will be raised. And not only are you calling him a liar and a sinner, you are calling him weak 
To say you can lose your salvation is to say that he is incapable of doing what the Father promised. Now, in all fairness to my brethren who teach you can lose your salvation, most of them have not thought it through. In fact, they haven't thought through a lot. That's why they come to the conclusion you can lose it. But they're not consciously typically saying, I believe Jesus is weak, a liar, and a sinner. But in practice, if you really understand what the Lord is saying, that is precisely what they are doing. Our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that all that have been given to him, not a single solitary person lost, will be raised up on the last day. And so for a child of God not to be raised up is not only a failure within the Godhead, it brings disunity within the Godhead. The son would need to change the father's eternal will. The Father would need to change the Spirit's purpose to seal us for the day of redemption. And the Son would have to stop continually interceding for us and to undo the Father's will that He came to complete. That's total disunity in the Trinity. Now, some of you, you look at me and I see a few of you are yawning and say, I understand the doctrine of eternal security. You don't understand it until you can explain it. And if you come to church and you're bored because a pastor is reteaching a doctrine, then you've come out of a dead church where no one ever gets saved. Because there's a lot of people today who are hearing this for the first time. And that's why I have to, as a pastor, continually, habitually reteach the doctrines of the New Testament. There's something for everyone. So go back to Revelation 14. Here is the perseverance of the saints. And the first of three characteristics found in this angel's message that summarize the lifestyle of a saved person is they have a secure relationship with God. But notice also, saved people are people who have an obedient faith, an obedient faith. Reading further now into verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is where it gets even more personal when John says that God's saints, God's saved ones, keep the commandments of God. In other words, the genuine believer is known by keeping the commandments of God. Now, the way some Christians teach, they almost say, well, they keep the commandments of God without failure. But those two words are not there in the text. In fact, the word keep, though, is a present active participle, tereo, and and it does imply a lifestyle. Look, we all sin. We all stumble in many ways. He who is without sin, the Scripture says, is calling God a liar. But what I want you to see is that when God credits you with righteousness, because we have none on our own, it is given as a gift, and God sees you as a holy one, a saint. For the first time ever, He can place the Spirit of God in you. You're made a new person on the inside, and your lifestyle begins to change where the pattern and the desire of your life is to obey the living God. Now, the commandments of God are something that delight the saints of God. Now, the Scripture does not teach that the difference between a true believer and a false believer is that a true believer never sins and a false believer does. No, the difference between a genuine believer and someone who's not is that when the genuine believer sins, one, he's disturbed by it, he's troubled by it, he's grieved because the spirit within him is grieved, and sometimes he's even disciplined by God because those whom the Lord loves, whom he has dictated 
to become a child of God, which is uh, dictated on receiving Jesus, John 1, 12. He disciplines. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. A believer is troubled by his sin. He is bothered by his sin. Where a false believer is not troubled at all. In fact, very often he becomes, as Romans 1 indicates, an evangelist for sin. He doesn't want to drink alone. He wants to get someone else to drink with him. He doesn't want to be immoral alone. He encourages other people to be immoral with him. Years ago, we used to often ask, I don't hear it much anymore, but we used to say, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? Listen, anyone who does not really care about the things of God, anyone who does not demonstrate the fruit of a second birth from above by a lifestyle committed to the commandments of God, and they think they're saved, they have indeed deceived themselves. And so what God does in this verse is He weds the doctrine of perseverance with the doctrine of works together. In fact, why don't you turn back to John chapter 10 for a moment. Let's look at one more text. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. Go to John chapter 10, and um, let's start in verse uh, 22. Jesus is up on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Again, if you go to Jerusalem and you're in the Mount of Olives, you can look straight across, and you will see the Temple Mount where these 144,000 are standing. And right on the southern part of the Temple Mount, there's a set of steps. They're called the Southern Steps. It's where Peter, Peter came out and preached. We discussed that when we were there in Israel last time. It's where Gamaliel preached to Paul. It's where the rabbis in Jerusalem would preach. It's where Pentecost took place. And right at the bottom of the steps are all these mikvahs, these gigantic bathtubs, where they baptized over 3,000 people that day. Or right above the southern steps, there's a mosque there today, but there was once Solomon's portico, and that's where Jesus is. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication is also called Hanukkah. You've heard of that, right? Or the Feast of Lights. The Feast of Dedication, it was winter. That's when it happens. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You say, wait a minute, pastor. These are religious people. They're observing the festival. They're celebrating God's faithfulness there when the temple was uh, recaptured. And yet Jesus says they're not his sheep. Well, how do I know if I'm one of his sheep? Well, he's going to tell you in Revelation 12, just like he does here in verse 27. Notice, my sheep hear my voice, and and I know them, and they follow me. Those who are right with God, whose hearts have been brought in sync to the voice of God. And I'm not saying, hey, Carl, this is God Almighty. That's not what we're talking about here. 
When the Bible speaks of you are hearing the voice of God, it's not typically with the exception of a few Old Testament saints where you literally hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice, Hebrews says, he's talking about hearing it through the written word of God. When you are reading the scripture, you are hearing the voice of God Almighty. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Wait a minute, pastor. I know some people were saved, but they're no longer saved. In fact, they totally renounced the Lord Jesus. They must have lost their salvation. Be careful when you say that because the Bible makes a huge distinction between those who outwardly confess Christ and those who have more than with the mind have believed with the heart. But pastor, what about these people who, you know, they come down front and and they say the sinner's prayer and they get baptized and Today, they want nothing to do with God, and they've renounced the faith, and they live immoral, wicked lives. Well, the Bible would say they've never been saved. Remember what John said, put in the margin next to this verse, 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19, let me read to you from his first letter. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. He's talking about teachers in the church who appeared to be incredibly orthodox, but now renounce the living God. They went out from us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. John is describing those who go for a while, but then they drift away. This is how Jesus said it in Luke 8. And by the way, Jesus thought this will be true in every church. Listen to Luke eight thirteen. He is in the parable of the sower describing those who have never truly been saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. They're stirred emotionally, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, when you see the word believe without the preposition in accompanied with it, most of the time it just refers to head knowledge. The demons believe and tremble. Jesus spoke of the Jews who had believed him, and then he turns around and he says, you are of your father the devil. Whenever you see the word believe accompanied with the preposition, in 100% of the cases in the New Testament, it's describing genuine saving faith. Listen, the faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first It was not a true, genuine, born-again, Bible-believing kind of faith. And people who some make a false start, they're stirred, they're emotional, but they don't persevere. Why? Because it never reached the heart. It never changed them. Notice, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give. We don't earn it. He gives eternal life to them. It is a gift. That's what secures you. Listen, if you could do something to lose your salvation, that would mean you would have to do something to earn your salvation. And this dear friend who called this week, friend, I I don't know who he was, but on the Bible line, he was often obviously very confused because he was in a church that was saying, well, if you do this certain sin, you're, you're severed from Christ and you lose your salvation. If it's a small sin, you're okay. But if it's a big sin, oh, you're in big trouble. Listen, when God saves us, those whom he foreknew, he glorified. 
There is an unbroken chain. He loses none. He saves us for the day of redemption. It is not faith plus work that saves. You're saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. You'll follow Christ. Paul will say this in Romans eleven six. but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If we are not, if, if we are not saved by our good works, but by his grace, then we cannot be lost by our bad works. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews said, for by one offering, he is perfected for all time. The King James says forever. Those who are sanctified by the one offering of Christ there in Golgotha with his shed blood, he is not continually being sacrificed as some falsely teach. One offering for all time forever secures the true child of God. You know, some people think, well, when God saves you, he just gives you a fresh start. That God makes the down payment and then you make the monthly installments. They think, okay, well, God's going to wipe the slate clean and give me a fresh start. But if I don't keep up the monthly installments, I'm going to lose this thing called eternal life. No, God doesn't give you a fresh start. God gives you a new position. He imputes to your account the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a new position, Revelation 14, 13. We'll look at it in a moment. It is in the Lord. Today, you are either in Christ, in his righteousness, given to you by his sheer mercy and grace on the basis of his substitutionary death, or you are in the righteousness that you were born with and forever lost if you die in that. So John says, I give eternal life to them. Listen to John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, not will have, has this moment. You can't lose something eternal. Think your way through that. Suppose a man is saved for five years and then loses his salvation. What does he have? Five-year life. Suppose a man is saved for 10 years and he loses his salvation. He's got 10-year life. But if a man has eternal life and he loses it, he didn't have eternal life. If you have something and you lose it, it's not something that's eternal. But the nature of the grace of God is eternal in its reflection. Let me give you a challenge. You find one verse in the Bible where a man is saved twice, and I'll change my opinion. There is none. People are never saved twice, not a singular verse in the Bible. These people who think you get saved and you lose it, and then you get saved again, and, and then you might lose it again. You know, you're born again, and then you're unborn again, and then you get born again again, and then you're unborn again again, and then you get born again again again. Listen, just like there's only one physical birth, there's one spiritual birth, period. And if you are not permanently changed, where you've come to know the Lord, where you're a new creature from the inside out, then there's a problem. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. A result of coming into this relationship where you can know the Lord, which is impossible when you're spiritually dead. You can only know him in terms of existence and in terms of intellect. But when you're born again, the spirit comes to live in you. And the promises, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's something magnificent here about the picture Jesus is giving that he wraps us in his omnipotent hand. 
You take this Susan B. Anthony silver dollar. I don't know why they call it a silver dollar. There's no silver in it, but, and that's me. I'm put in the hand of Christ. And Jesus said, no one shall snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given me to you is greater than all, and no one shall snatch you out of my Father's hand. We're both God. Listen, you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you today. It is by the grace of God. You say that is too easy. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Because man in his self-righteous pride does not want to humble himself and receive grace. He wants to do something to earn and merit his salvation. You say, well, maybe no person could snatch you out of his hand, but the devil could. Listen, question, if Satan could snatch you out of the Father's hand, why hasn't he done that already? Listen, if you think that Satan could somehow snatch you out of the Father's and the Son's hand, and therefore you lose your salvation, then do you know what that implies? It implies that you're not lost yet because of the goodness of the devil. Listen, the devil doesn't like you. He hates you. He despises you. And he is out to destroy you, but he cannot take you out of the Father's hand. In fact, it's in a middle voice when it says, they shall never perish. Literally, they shall never destroy themselves. You can't even take yourself out of the Father's hand. They shall never destroy themselves. Back here to the book of Revelation. Listen, if God didn't save me from me, He didn't save me from my worst enemy. He saved me from me. He secured me for all of eternity. Now look at Revelation 14, 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God. That's a fruit of salvation. And their faith in Jesus. Now, this angel is describing believers who have perseverance and who have faith in Jesus. And what a contrast between those in 9 and 11, verses 9 through 11, who put their confidence in the Antichrist, who have refused the Lord Jesus and have embraced this false one world leader. Where's your faith this morning? Look, there are people all over evangelicalism who make quote-unquote decisions, and in a short period of time, they are reunited with the world, the flesh, and the devil. They may have had an emotional experience, but they did not have conversion. Now, finally and quickly, the lifestyle of the saved, third, saved people are those who have a promised reward. They have a promised reward. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. Now, seven times in the Revelation, we are told we hear a voice from heaven. And on each occasion when God does that, He's about to say something that is very, very important. It's basically like Jesus saying, truly, truly, verily, verily, listen up, this is important, right? Blessed or blessed, I don't know why we say it that way, we go with the old English. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now remember, contextually, God is contrasting those who deify and follow the Antichrist with those who bow at the feet of the Lord Jesus. He has just spoken of these, whose the smoke of their torment in verse 11 goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. But of his people, he says, blessed are the dead 
who die in the Lord from now on. Please notice how they are identified in the Lord. Everyone in this room, everyone within the sound of my voice on our other campuses, today you're either in Christ or outside of Christ. The most fundamental definition of a Christian in the New Testament is that he is an individual in Christ. If you are in your righteousness, you are still lost. You're still a child of wrath, Paul says, by nature. And if you die that way, unless you're an unencountable little baby, you will die forever lost. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Why is it a blessing? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that place that you go to is marvelous. It's prepared for us. God in His great wisdom and omniscience and omnipotence is creating a place that is conceived and designed and planned for His people. It's a marvelous place. My wife is has these butterfly plants and uh, Gary Baker, our, our, he's the guy we buy all our plants from. They're the best, I'll tell you. And and I, we get our plants from him, and and all these butterflies come in, and this certain plant, and they lay eggs, and then they form a chrysalis, and you begin to watch these monarchs break out. And if you get them right after they break out, you can put them on your finger and they'll just sit there and they'll kind of, we used to put them on our children's nose and they'd sit there and they'd flap out their wings. And the design of the butterfly is so magnificent how God almost like painted the design on their wings. Our God who, who created the, the Alps or painted the design in a flower or made the magnificent intricacies of the human body is creating a place for you. By the way, this is the second of seven, a lot of sevens in Revelation, the second of seven Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Underscore in your thinking those last three words, from now on. Why does he add that phrase? Now, we often, myself included, have read this at funerals. And in one sense, it applies to every Christian, but it especially applies to the tribulation saints. And this phrase from now on is very important because they've reached a time in the tribulation where if you follow Jesus, you're either starved to death because you can't buy or sell anything, but most people experience beheading. Off goes the head. You refuse Antichrist, take his head off. Men, women, children. And at this point, it's far better to be dead at the hand of the Antichrist than it is to be alive as one of his doomed eternal followers. Look, you hear the Spirit's voice. Yes, says the Spirit. Now, obviously, the Spirit is the author of all of this Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration through the Holy Spirit. Men who are moved by God spoke by the Spirit. But twice in the Revelation, you hear the voice of the Spirit. And he simply says in one word, yes. Now remember, it was the Spirit who convicted you of your sin. He uh, multiplied the guilt that you felt in your heart, showing you your need. 
He, when you believed on the Lord Jesus, made you alive together with him. He regenerated you by himself. You became a temple of the Holy Spirit. He allowed you to know the Lord. I'll put my spirit in them that they might all know me. He made God personal to you. He's the one, he uses human teachers and gifts human teachers, but he's the ultimate teacher who works behind us and he illumines the scripture. He is the one who fills you so you can live a godly life. He is the one who helps you. He is the one who gifts you. He is the one who comforts you in all of your grief. He is the one who seals you. And finally, when you die, the Holy Spirit says, yes, it's his divine amen. Because he has finished that which he has started and his work is to bring you to glory. Now we see in this verse the strong contrast between the rest of the saints with those who are wicked of whom we just read. They have no rest day and night. But here is the promise. They have rest from their labors. And it's an interesting word for rest. It means rest from the hard, difficult circumstances and toil. It is not a word that does not mean you will not work. We've already seen in Revelation 7 that they serve him, the saints in heaven, day and night. We will have responsibility and privileges and we will work for the Lord Jesus and our glorified bodies during the millennial reign of Christ. But this word signifies the truth that there'll be rest from the fatigue and the irritations and the annoyances and the afflictions and the persecutions that have plagued God's people living in this fallen world. Your rest from all the struggles and disappointments and heartaches of life. There'll no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning. There'll no longer be any crying. There'll no longer be any pain or tears, the scripture says. Rest, so they may rest from their labors. And then he adds, for their deeds follow with them. For these tribulation saints, and by application for every true child of God, our troubles will be over, and the only thing that will await us will be our reward. Heaven enough is a reward, but then God rewards you for your faithful service to Jesus Christ. Sometimes I see people quit. And I find out the reason they quit serving is because no one thanked them. Who are you serving? For God, though, is not unjust to forget your work. We should thank people. We should encourage them. But if you expect me to thank every person as your pastor for everything you do, you're not going to be here long. You don't serve me. If you're not serving Christ, if you're serving men, you'll want the thanks of men. But God is not unjust so as to forget your work, and there's so much you do that nobody sees. Much of what we do, nobody sees. Some of you moms stay at home, and, and you're laboring over those kids. Some of the things you do, ladies, sees, but God does. How are we going to apply this today? Let me ask a few questions. Number one, 
Do you demonstrate perseverance by a loyalty and obedience to Christ? That's the first question. Do you demonstrate perseverance by a loyalty and obedience to Christ? Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're in Christ, if you've had a birth from above, you're a new creation and everything changes. And one thing that will change is your obedience and your perseverance. Remember what Jesus said during this horrible time in human history? That's the context of the verse. It's during the first half of the tribulation. He said, but the one who endures to the end, the word there is not a noun, it's a verb, but it's the same word translated perseverance in our text. The one who perseveres to the end, he'll be saved. Listen, Jesus is not teaching you're saved by perseverance. That would be works. But he is teaching that if you are saved, you will persevere. And he is saying it, and it appears twice in the Revelation, in both in the context of deep persecution. In the 13th chapter of those who are being executed for Jesus, but they don't renounce him. They persevere. I told you the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw at the first. Say that 10 times real fast. (laughs) It keeps going. It doesn't renounce Christ. A lot of people are in for a big shock. Many, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say to them, I never knew you. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keeps the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Notice, this is not a suggestion. It's not even a commandment. It is simply a statement of fact. Do you have a true, genuine faith? Secondly, when you die, will your death be a blessing or a curse? Now, remember, the people who will be reading this during the Great Tribulation will be reading it during the worst time in human history. But in the midst of this hurricane, in the midst of this horrible storm, there's an eye of blessing. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, that seems like a rather strange statement. We might think it should read, well, blessed are the living, but not blessed are the dead. We might think the only people who could say blessed are the dead are are some terrorists who's been eternally deceived by some false religion, and they think that if they kill themselves, they receive all these great blessings as they destroy other people. And then there are those who advocate abortion and and those who advocate euthanasia, and they think, well, taking the, the, the life of someone who's terminally ill is a blessing. But for most people, they they don't think of of death as a, a blessing, but it's described that way in the Scripture because it's not a loss, it is a gain. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is how you get in the Lord. The Father made Jesus who is sinless, who knew no sin. He made him sin on your behalf. There on Golgotha, Peter said, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Once for all time, you weren't even alive. God saw all of your sin and he laid it on Christ. The one who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. Why? So that we could become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God. That's what you need. You're going to go to heaven 
You only get there if you have God's righteousness and you can't earn it. It's gifted. It's received by grace. Have you received it? Have you called upon Christ in faith and taken Him at His word? Or are you trying to get there by the things that you do? God saved us so that we might worship Him. We've been saved from an awful, hideous place. We've been saved by someone who did all the work and paid it for in full that we might love Him freely and unconditionally. Now, Holy Father, I thank You today for Your Word, a lamp under our feet and a light to our path. I pray today for someone who's listening to me. They're on some radio station. They're listening through the Internet. They may even be here or on one of our campuses, and they are unsure that heaven is really their home. They hope to go to heaven. They want to go to heaven, but they don't know. And Your Word teaches they don't know because they've never received a gift that cannot be earned. Thank You that we can know on the basis of what Jesus did for us. Thank You that whosoever will may come. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You came into the world to save sinners. I pray today, Father, for someone who needs to call upon Christ. Help them to know that You cannot lie, that You keep every promise. Your Word says it's impossible for You to lie. You teach that faith is believing what You promised. And You promised because of what Jesus did that whoever will call on His name will be saved. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for those of us who have done that, may we never be ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. May we faithfully share it. May we see people the way you see people either as a child of God or a child of wrath, either in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of darkness. Help us to warn men and women to flee the wrath that is coming. Help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel this week as we attempt to share it. We ask for your help to accomplish that. We ask it for the glory of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.